You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Okay, hi everyone. Reading from verse 2. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh on the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the men came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? And the men hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the men said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years." Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the son, the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory had departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. 
Help us to respond in faith. Thank you so much, Jolene, and good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to RHC this morning. And uh, yeah, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors in the second congregation. And it's great to see everyone here. It's so nice to just see the children being dedicated and just, yeah, little ones added to our community. And as Jacob alluded to earlier, I'm sure there are some of us who are rejoicing and some of us who are grieving because of the match last night. And I'm sure at around 3 to 5 a.m. this morning, there might have been a little bit more prayers that were going on um, in different parts of Singapore. And I wonder as the New Zealand fans and the South African fans were praying, how did God decide who would win? It's a funny question, right? Um, and, and so that's... Uh, that's, that's where we are right now, right? Someone has won, but we don't know how God decided. And we are continuing this series today um, from 1 Samuel. A couple of weeks back, what did we see? Just to put us back um, on track, we saw how Hannah was dependent on God and not her self-sufficiency, and God provided her with Samuel, right? And last week, we saw how Eli and his sons were compared or contrasted with Samuel, passivity versus humility and obedience. Now today, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, if you've been tracking, you see that the, the, the author has actually pulled out and zoomed out from Samuel and now is focusing on Israel. And we'll see together um, today how Israel is seen as not trusting in God, but trusting in themselves. But before we begin, let me just pray for us this morning. Father, Lord, even as we approach your word this morning, we pray that you allow us to see how you are in control of our lives and how we can and should trust you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my sermon today is Trusting God to Fulfill His Plans for Us. The question I have for us today is, how many of you play console or video games? Yeah, quick show of hands. No, I'm sure. Don't be embarrassed. Oh, yes, I see some hands now. Great. Right? So I play console and video games with my kids, and often because they challenge me, they want to see how good I am. Clearly, I'm not. Huh? So every time we play, and I keep playing, and I lose, and I keep playing again, the reality is that for the first few times when I lose, I'll just say, oh, I'm just warming up, you know, let me keep going, and then it'll get better. And at some point, I keep losing, and then I'll start fiddling with the controls, right? Oh, the control is not good, the button is sticking, the joystick is not moving well, you know, things are not tracking on the screen well, the controller is just no good, we should change the controller. Well, my kids are gracious kids. What do they do? They say, Daddy, it's fine, yeah, here, change, use another controller. <laughs> right, and, but guess what? I think the reality is this, no matter how many controllers I change, I think the result would be the same, I would still lose. Now the, so, so I've come to the conclusion, right? It is not the problem of the controllers, but the player who is controlling the controller. And I want to just ask us to think a little bit. It is a bit like us, isn't it? We spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of our lives trying to stay in control. Right? We could be anxious each morning, wanting to control our schedules, looking at our emails, productivity tools, whatever it might be, right? just trying to get things going. Or you could be trying to control your relationships, scrolling through social media, looking at statuses of people, 
checking your WhatsApp, trying to figure out what people are thinking of us or how we seem to others. Or as you saw, the young parents in front of us, right? I'm sure we're like trying to find gadgets, going to Shopee to find what's the coolest, best gadget, you know, to keep our lives in order, just to make sure we survive, as I was talking to one uh, parent earlier, right? We do these things. And like the controller in our games, we use our time, our gadgets, our social media, and we use them and we throw them at our problems. And when they don't work, we use another controller, we switch them and we change them around, trying to find what can help us to keep in control. But the reality is, the solution is not in the controllers, but in whose control we are giving ourselves to. In today's text, we see how seeking control of our own plans in the absence of God leads to real consequences of judgment and the departure of God's glory. And yet, in all that seeming absence, and we'll see later, right, of God, we see the beginnings of God's restoration and His glory woven in. It is both sobering and hopeful, showing God's glory both in His judgment and His restoration. And so the three points of my sermon today are, number one, we seek control to fulfill our own plans. And number two, God is in control to fulfill His plans. And finally, trust in God to fulfill His plan. Let's dive into the first point. We seek control to fulfill our plans. Today's text can be divided into two broad sections. The first one is the battle, and which ended off with defeat, and Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed, and the ark is captured. The second part is the post-battle report, leading to the death of Eli and the wife of Phineas. So the first point will be mainly focused on the first section. And the first point will be a bit longer, the second and third point uh, will be a little bit shorter. So we zoom into the text and we see immediately we're thrown into this battlefield. Right? We see Israel fighting with the Philistines. And they're having this epic battle that's going on. And really, it's just gore, fighting, swords, clanging. We don't really know who started the battle. But what is clear, what is clear here is that God is absent, glaringly absent, right? Not just in the battle, but also in consultation. Israel did not consult God at all in this battle. Now, as if the, the details weren't that important, within the first, the second verse, right, the battle had spread and Israel had been defeated, losing 4,000 soldiers as a result. Now, 4,000 soldiers... Look around in this room, we've got like maybe 380, 400 people. 4,000 soldiers would be 10 times of this ballroom. 10 times of this ballroom, soldiers fallen, killed, defeated. But yet, they clearly didn't seem like they felt they were defeated. After the defeat, when the people returned back to camp, Eli was absent. But who was there? There was a group of elders who were responsible for Israel, and they seemed surprised that they were defeated. How do we see that in the question, right, that they ask? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Right? Why has the Lord defeated us? Who was this question for? Could be reflective but, or rhetorical in some senses. But this leads us to the first sub-point that we minimize God's glory when we seek control by using God. The question of God's role in their defeat seemed to be a good question, 
right? It's, it's a good question. But it was treated in a very perfunctory way. It was glossed over and moved out of the way quickly, and the elders went into solution mode. Now, does that sound a lot like us? Like us, when we, when we treat our problems, we ask God, right? God, um, should I stay on in this job? Should I not? Should I look for a new job? Or should I not? And then we straight away go to LinkedIn and start applying for jobs, right? And, and that's really how we work, right? We ask. So we put God into the equation, and then we take Him right out again, right? We put Him in, we throw Him right out. And by referencing God's name, we seem to be trying to put His stamp on approval of approval on our plans, making Him sign off on what we had already prepared, the contract that we had already written out. We just want Him to sign off on it. And that's how we treat God, don't we? Now, in light of their initial defeat, the elders were thinking, what better way to prove that God was still on their side than to use the Ark of the Covenant? We see that in verse 3. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh. The elders said, let us bring the Ark. You know, with 4,000 fallen soldiers behind them, they were still so keen on victory. They were still going for it wanting to keep fighting. And the elders said, let us bring the ark, as if the ark was a commodity, as if the ark was something that was for them to take and bring on demand, without any consultation of the one who was represented by the ark. Now, what did the ark mean for the Israelites? It was a very visceral reminder, an expression of glory of God. Now, if you look on the screen, there's a list of things there, right? So the, the ark itself represented the presence, the rule, the revelation, the reconciliation of God leading the people to Israel. Leading the people of Israel. But instead, what did the Israelites use the ark for? And again, going back to verse 3, it says that the ark, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. What the Israelites were doing was that they were using the ark as a tool or a proxy for God's power. They might have been reminded of the glorious times in Joshua and Numbers where the ark was there leading them into victory, victory after victory. And therefore, when they summoned the ark from Shiloh, they were really wanting to use the ark that represented God's glory to guarantee their victory. Because why? Why would God allow himself to be defeated? When his ark is there, showing that he's there. Or why, in their minds, why would he allow their chosen people, the very chosen people of God, to be defeated by these pagans? So why did they do that? Why did the Israelites do this? Well, it simply shows that they did not trust that God had a good plan for them. Now, given the current track record, 4,000 people died, right? They had better get into action to fix God's inaction. Right? Isn't that how we think as well? We do the same as Christians because we grow so accustomed to grace that is undeserved and we start to believe we deserve it. Or worse still, that all the things that happen around us happen because of our good foresight, our planning, and how wonderful we are. And this can really happen when we lose sight of confession and repentance before our God. We live our lives in a deserved assurance like we earned it. Right now, in our entitlement, we think we know better and therefore we see our desires really as a very legitimate endpoint, as something that we deserve. 
as you can want. But more important than that, this really betrays our lack of trust in God's plan for us. We think of God as being very absent in this world, leaving us to fend for ourselves while giving us access to His power. And then we appropriate this power of God through artifacts, rituals, or habits to force God's hand to do our will. You know, like the Israelites who were so sure they would win because they were chosen by God. Are we tempted to find our identity in our Christianness rather than the fact that we are in Christ, broken but rescued? Not because we come to church, not because we pray three times a day, not because we do all the right things, we read the Bible at the right times. Or are we tempted to be perfunctory in our Bible reading, in our devotion, in time that we spend with God? We spare five minutes on the train or in between uh, a walk to somewhere else to read God's Word so that when we have finished our duty as a Christian for the day, after that, every time I call on God, I can say, God, I already did my dues, right? I already prayed to you this morning. I already read the Bible. So now you must answer me. You must listen to me. You must say that. Yes, I will hear you. Now, one of the ways that could expose how we think of God as a tool is also in our prayers. Now, if our prayers are only full of supplication, directive prayers for God to help us, perhaps to do well in our end-of-year exams, for us to get the course that we want, for perhaps the guy over there or the girl over there to notice you, you know? And if that is all that we pray about, if that is the full extent of our prayer life, I want to urge us to consider if we are using God simply as a controller to get our way from Him. And so yes, we can see how we can take God's power that was provided to flourish and fulfill His purpose and yet we can distort it, a good thing, distort it and misuse it to seek control for our own plans. And the truth is that even if we know God and His power, we can quickly fall back to our default to only trust ourselves for our own rescue, treating God only as a crutch or controller to do our bidding. Now trusting in ourselves is really a default mode for us, right? And we will see that in the next sub-point, turning where we maximize our glory when we seek control by depending on our own strength. So now we flip over to the Philistines and we see the Philistines there in the battlefield. Now it's a contrast from the Israelites. The Philistines had already defeated the Israelites, killing 4,000 Israelites. That huge number, right? But yet, when they learned that the Ark of the Lord was in the battlegrounds, they were afraid. So why were they afraid? They were afraid because they recognized the presence of God, the deity. But more than that, they recognized it was God who had delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. Now, although there were errors in the details, right? Like, instead of God, it's God's. And God did that, struck the Egyptians in the wilderness, but he didn't, he struck them in Egypt. But yet, the Bible portrays them as putting more consideration about God than the Israelites did. The Philistines, in a very ironic way, they knew about God and His power. But what was their response? What was the response of the Philistines? They didn't turn to God. Neither did they ask Him for mercy, or better still, follow Him 
In fact, their response was not even to go back to their own god, the Dagon, right? Which we'll see in later chapters. They didn't turn to their own gods. Now the question is why? There was certainly a sense of fear. Fear of what happened previously to the enemies of God of Israel. In verse 8, we see that. There was a sense of pride. They didn't want to be proved wrong or defeated by the people that they were having some power over at this point. There was a pride of wanting to be right, and more than that, there was an instinctive need and desire to be in control. Right In the battlefield where things are heated and ongoing, you want to be in control. You want to say, I, I can do this. I'm in control of this. And really, that's what they did. They turned inward to themselves, and their response was a rousing battle cry for the Philistines to take courage and be men, to be men and fight. It was a response of instinctive reliance on their own strength. Strangely enough, though, in this passage, what was the result of the battle? The Bible in verse 10 states it simply and to the point. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. Now, it sounds strangely wrong, right, in many senses as we think of this story, but yet strangely relatable. In this world where things sometimes just don't make sense and things are topsy-turvy, They work out in ways that we just don't understand. It almost seems like the Philistines were vindicated. Their self-sufficiency paid off. They were able to mete out even greater damage despite God of Israel being present. Now, how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of this situation? And that's where we move to the next point. God is in control to fulfill His plans. And God fulfills His plans by establishing His glory. The Philistines seemed to have won the battle. There were 30,000 more soldiers who had died. And in the midst of that dismal report, the author zoomed in on four other deaths. In the middle of huge numbers of deaths, zoomed in on four other deaths. Hophni, Phinehas, Eli, and Phinehas' wife. And each of these, as we will see, pointed to the fact that God was still at work in enacting His plan. Now, Hophni and Phinehas, we've met them earlier on. Um, They were apt at appropriating and robbing God's glory and exchanging it for their own. And this was the extent of their hard-heartedness towards God. They were described as worthless, not knowing the Lord. They were also described as showing contempt and scorn on the offerings of God. On the mercy, the very mercy that was provided for them, they showed scorn on it. They took their position and made themselves into gods, choosing the kinds of choice meats and what and how it was even cooked for them. And in doing that, they clearly felt that they were not in need of God's mercy, rejecting it. And this would be like the prodigal son, right? Many of us are familiar with that story. Except that when he went to the father's home, imagine after being welcomed, enjoying the feast, he goes on to insult the father, sets himself up as the patriarch and attempts to throw his father out of his home. And that's what it seemed like. Hophni and Phinehas' death was a fulfillment of the will and the judgment of God. It was an execution of judgment of God on their self-exaltation and their desire to disregard God's glory. Here we see the judgment of God in full force. Their rejection of God's grace in His fullness was met by judgment and death. Death that was planned, prophesied and premediated. But more importantly, it was a death that was deserved because of their hardness of heart 
and worthlessness and their rejection of grace that they had chosen to receive. They had been chosen, sorry, to receive. Now because of sin, the Israelites would be condemned, would have been condemned to die. But God had chosen them as a light to the nations around them, given them means to experience His mercy through sacrificial offerings. Today, we are also in judgment because we are similarly under sin. Do we, like Hophni and Phinehas, look upon the grace of salvation through Christ's work on the cross with contempt and scorn? Or do we, in our rescue, grow a deeper appreciation of the love of Christ in us and for His desire to flourish us? As we return to the text, we see that the two deaths, death of Hophni and Phinehas, also set the stage for two other deaths to come. Now in verse 12, Eli was in the judge's seat on the throne, similar to the seat that he was in in chapter 1 verse 9. And he was described as watching in verse 13, but not seeing in verse 15. Now why was he watching? His heart was trembling for the ark of God. He must have been concerned about whether the ark had made it back safely. He must have been terrified of the consequences of losing the ark on his watch as the high priest. But yet, he did not challenge the elders' decision to summon the ark or bring the ark to the battlefield. Now similarly, Eli, as we saw, chided his sons for, dishonoring, for their dishonoring behavior. But he did not stop them from doing those things. In fact, he might have also joined them on occasion where he felt like it was just enough to keep out of God's bad books and to stay in control, to stay on top of things but enough to maintain his comfort. There was this sense of just enoughness. Now, we can also do the same. We might also take the gospel and God's glory lightly when we accept deliverance and we espouse trust in God, but yet we do just enough to keep in God's good books while keeping our comfort and our own glory. When we come weekly to confess our sins and repent, we receive comfort and rest so that we can go back into Mondays with a sense that, yeah, perhaps we can just get by without just enoughness, right? just to last till the next Sunday when we come to God again for refreshment. What this does is that it demonstrates a distrust that God's power is sufficient to work beyond patching our difficult lives here today, that God is unable to give us new hearts that can show His glory and point others to Him. Eli was sitting by the side of the gate when the men ran back, reporting the defeat. The gates in those times were a place of judgment and execution and public displays, which also explains why judges and kings typically sat there. Now the irony was that this was the location where he was knocked off his throne. And why was he knocked off? Not because he heard about the defeat of Israel, in fact, it wasn't even because he heard about the death of his sons. He was knocked over when he heard about the loss of the ark, or the capture of the ark. And the greater irony is this, he was killed by the weight that was possibly fattened by sacred meats, the meats that he took from the offerings. Eli was killed by his self-made exaltation 
as the judgment from God whose glory he stole from. And finally, we see the death of this unnamed wife of Phineas. The passage started off with the elders calling upon the ark on demand. And this is bookended by the very poignant words before the death of the unnamed wife of Phineas, who revealed that the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel because the ark had been captured. Now the reality was that God had allowed the ark to be captured because his glory had already departed from Israel. And in some way, rather than the ark being captured, one could say that the ark had departed from from Israel. And at this point, we see that the battle was not a loss for God. But in fact, it was the beginning of the vindication for the glory of God. Through the four deaths, it was a glimpse of God beginning His work of restoration in the land of Israel in these dark times through His judgment and eventually allowing His people to again know Him as we see in chapter 7. Now even when the ark was captured, God depended on no one but Himself as we will see in following weeks as God defeated Dagon. Now in fact, God did the impossible. He made the enemies return the ark. Is that crazy or what? Now perhaps in this, God was answering the question that the elders were asking in verse 3 that we kept seeing over and over early on. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines in that very clear and overpowering way? Now God fulfills His plan by saving us from judgment. And while the ark was kept within the tabernacle and very present with Israel, the people could not recognize or understand its glory. The ark demonstrated the presence, the rule, revelation, reconciliation, and the leading of God. It tied together the word and the law, the sacrificial rites pointing to the mercy of God. The mercy of God in wanting to deliver Israel from judgment through the rites of sacrifice and offering. The deliverance of His chosen people pointing to His glory, which ironically was seen through the eyes of the Philistines, right? When they said, oh, this is the God of Israel the God that that delivered Israel from Egypt. But this glory was persistently robbed when Israel chose their own glory over God's glory because they did not trust in God. The birth of a child was used to awaken Israel to the judgment of losing God's grace, God's glory and presence from the nation. But we see in Psalm chapter 8, verse Psalm 8, 5, that we who are crowned with God's glory at creation we also chose to persistently seek out our own glory by fulfilling our own plans. Let us consider our default mode, right? This mode of trusting in ourselves and not trusting in the plans that God has for us. It is really because of our short-sightedness, our inability to see beyond what we have in front of us. But we're grateful that we have a God who is different. We have a God who loves us despite our sin, who loves us more and better than we can ever. He does not need to seek control because He is in control. He does not seek glory because all glory belongs to Him. And yet He has created us to carry some of that glory. And more than that, God has planned to save us from ourselves, our sins, our desire to usurp His glory, to think that our plans are better than His. And God in His grace desires our true salvation. His plan was provided without any help or dependence from us. And the hope was also announced in the birth of another child many years later. Jesus was more than a king and a judge. 
He did not need to suffer a moment in this broken world. Yet he came to earth to reveal God's glory so that we can recognize God's glory. He came to reveal God's glory and to tabernacle and to abide with us, amongst us, as John 1.14 says. Jesus had every right to call upon God for his deliverance. But for our sakes, he depended on the will and purpose of God so that our sins can be forgiven. Jesus is our true and better high priest. And he is mediating between us and God when he came down to earth to die for us. But even now, Jesus is in heaven interceding on our behalf. He has revealed God to us. His love, his character, his righteousness and grace, all through his life, he revealed God and abided with us in a much richer, better and more perfect way than the ark could. So the question, my question for us today is, what is our response? What is our response? Let's go into the third point, to trust in God to fulfill his plans. Now we need to trust God and you might think that is a very abstract thing to do, right? What, what do you mean to trust God? Let me break this down for us. First, let us trust the God that saves us. There might be some among us who are here, who are visiting, who have come for baby dedications, or do not yet know God or Jesus. And perhaps you are curious. Now what is stopping us today from trusting in God? Are you tired of just trying to keep up with keeping up? with the daily routines, cycling through waking up each morning, stressed, anxious, tired, trying to control your life with the amount of emails that you get, um, going through different things, just making sure that life works. We go to sleep and we wake up again to that same rhythm of anxiety and stress over and over again. The endless desire for control just ex exposes the deeper idolatries of our hearts. How our failure to be in control informs our identity. And how our failure to be in control informs our failure to perhaps be a man, we think, in the worldly way. And how our failure to be in control informs our inability to perhaps be ready for our next promotion. What if... I told you today that Jesus has already won that battle of control on that cross with the death of Jesus and his resurrection. The fact that he relegated his will to God for the sake of our flourishing demonstrates that our flourishing is indeed a key part of God's purpose. For those of us who don't yet know Jesus, will you be like the Philistines who hear about the wondrous work, the power of God, but yet turn away from him? but instead turn back to ourselves and decide to man up to regain control. As you have seen today, God is ultimately in control. But more than that, God's plan is one that desires to, to flourish us and to allow us to point back to His glory. I urge you this morning, if you don't yet know Jesus, to come, to lean in, to draw near, to recognize your need for a Christ who is already in control and to trust Him enough to give Him your control. And that's really all that's required of us, to know that we are in need because help is already there. And in many ways, that in itself requires us to give up control and to trust in God. So later, if 
any of you feel like you want to know more about God and about Christ, do come to the front, come talk to us, talk to myself or any of the leaders who will be up here waiting to hear from you. Now, second, we need to trust that God's plan is better than ours. Now, though that may not almost always seem that way, right? Don't jump into solution mode. Hold back our horses. Hold back the strategy. But first, go to the Savior. Go to Jesus. Go to the foot of the cross. Revisit that daily and moment by moment. Confess our need for Him. Repent our sins of desiring to establish our own plans, wanting to control the outcomes. Now, what does this mean practically? First of all, to spend time in being open with God in confession and, and repentance. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. The psalmist says this right after he recognizes that God is the one who wonderfully created him. Why? We need to be reminded of our position as sinners before a saviour. Because our broken state beckons us to see ourselves as saviour instead of sinners very often. And there are also sins that only time with God can expose, which otherwise would remain hidden. Confession and repentance also brings us back where? It brings us back to the cross that allows us to revisit God's heart for us, that allows us to have this assurance that comes from the right place, knowing that His deep, undeserved covenantal love and sacrifice and His desire is to deliver us from our rightful judgment by an exchange to become his sons and daughters. So I urge us to do that, to come to the cross daily, to think about God daily, to let us see and soak in that assurance in him. And finally, trust in God that his desire is for us to point to his glory. Now there's sin and there's suffering. Jesus' justification and redemption deals with both of these things. In fact, Jesus is the only person who can redeem us. But Jesus does not redeem us so that we are in a state of just enoughness. right? So that we can just get by in life. Now, neither does He redeem us so that we can be exalted in our existential state. In fact, there's little about our state, our existential state, that can be exalted because of sin and brokenness. But Jesus does better. He reveals God's glory and He points us to the glory of God so that when we believe in Jesus, our justification from our deserved judgment and our redeeming is made beautiful in Jesus. And this ought to point us to the glory of our Heavenly Father, our God. I would just like to end with this story. Um, And this story is about an ex-colleague that I have... um, an ex-colleague whom I worked with many, many years back. And we were friends. He's a smart, outspoken, sociable, very well-liked by the people he worked with. And was managed, he managed his peers and his bosses really well. In his national service days, he was part of the elite forces. And he prided himself on having a very disciplined and strong mind, which he did. He's a young father with two children. He's ambitious, frequently promoted in his job, and in, many, in the eyes of many, he was a picture of success. Now, after I left that company, we didn't really keep in touch, but we were friends on Facebook. You know, see, the users of Facebook, huh? But two years ago, I remember him sharing on Facebook that he was diagnosed with ALS. For those of us who don't know, ALS is a fatal mortal neuron disease which leads over time to paralysis. 
I remember texting him and asking if he had already known God at that point. He shared that he had been to a mission school and his relatives were reaching out, but he just didn't feel ready. But recently, at the start of October, I saw a post from him that read, Irony of my life. After two years of skipping church services and spending countless Friday nights at clubs and silent discos for live bands and music, I just spent my Friday night today at God's disco listening to a live band and worshipping at the same time. Now, instead of the DJ asking you to put your hands up in the air, it's the pastor who is asking you to raise your hands. I am yours, forever yours. And I was so moved because here was someone who had lost so much in life, who was suffering so much and was yet able to trust in God and to point to God and His glory in such a deafening way. His coming to salvation did not just lead him to to be able to deal with his suffering and sadness with a just enoughness to stoke his comfort, but it brought forth a joy and a delight in God that multiplied God's glory over and over again. And it doesn't just end there. I was mulling over whether I should use his story and whether he would allow me to share his story. But up until then, I didn't have the courage to text him or ask him, but last week, out of the blue, I received a text from another brother in Second Congre, who sent me a photo of him with this person, this brother, without warning. And I was, I was just so amazed. And I just told, Mark, uh, just told Marcus, right, who's the one who sent me the photo, to let our friend know that I was thinking about him whilst I was doing my sermon prep. And then he replied me with this photo. Ask him to mention me lah. And I didn't even ask, right? I didn't even have to check in. And God was doing this work. And and I was so blown away. It's confirmation of God, how God wanted this story to be told. To see how God is in control, even down to facilitating the smallest details such as this to demonstrate his greatness and glory. And today I'm really joyful that Kok Ping is here worshipping with us today. And I just want to... Yeah, I just want to point all glory to God. And let's, let's do that. Let's, let's take this time to pray and thank God. Father, we indeed we stand before you and we are blown away, Lord, by your glory, by the beauty of your grace, by who you are. And Father, we just want to come before you acknowledging that we are nothing. Um, that often we want to take control for the things in our lives to stoke our own desires. But Father, we ask that today you will turn our hearts to you, that you help us to learn to trust you in all ways, to know you more, to know you better, to know you deeper, to know that you have a much bigger purpose for our lives. Lord, and that is to point to your glory so that others may know you. So, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.